Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today, my guest on the Time Management Podcast is the incredible Lucy Brazier. Lucy is the CEO of Marsham Publishing. She's an international speaker. She's a conference chair and she was awarded the OBE from the Queen of England for services to office professionals in 2021's birthday honours list. She is an advocate for the administrative profession and she has been doing this for over 10 years. Lucy is also the publisher of the executive support magazine and the event organiser of some incredible conferences that happen every year, both online and in person. The executive support live, the global event, the executive tech event. I have spoken at some of them in person and online, and perhaps we have met there in the past. As we are speaking right now, she is also in the process of launching her brand new book, The Modern Day Assistant Build Your Influence and Boost Your Potential, which is currently launching around the world as we are speaking right now. So, so exciting. And you are going to be in with the chance to win a signed copy of this brand new book. So make sure you stick around to the end when we'll be telling you the hashtag that you need to use on the post where you are going to be sharing your top takeaways from this conversation to be entered into the draw to win this signed copy of Lucy's book. So I cannot wait to hear what you take away from this conversation. It was an amazing one. And I very, very much look forward to you hearing it too. So let's dive in. Welcome to the Time Management Podcast with me, your host, Abigail Barnes. I'm a productivity coach, global speaker, time management author, and award-winning entrepreneur on a mission to share the 888 formula with the world and to remind you that it's your time. Leave it to me to bring you new time management tips, tricks, tools, and strategies to introduce you to guests, research, and case studies from around the world, and to give you a simple five-step process you can follow to up-level your productivity, achieve your goals, and create a life that exceeds your wildest dreams. I'm so excited that you're here, so let's get started. Lucy, welcome to the Time Management Podcast. I am so excited to have you here with us today. Abigail, it's always wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for the invite. Oh, we have so much to talk about over the next 40 minutes. And for those of you who want to win a signed copy of Lucy's book that we're going to be talking about today, make sure you stick around until the end. Let's just dive straight in, Lucy. What would you say your relationship was like with time back in the day? Take us back on the journey. Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, I've been in publishing now since I was 18 years old and I'm 54 now, so rather a long time. But I got made a publisher very early on in my career. Then the generation really that was the first generation where all the women went to work, you know, the baby boomers. And so it was very much, I think, at that point, you have to show that you're as good as the men and you almost have to work harder to make sure that everybody is clear that you are committed to your job. And so my relationship with time back then was really terrible. I just had absolutely 
no clue how to manage it. And I was juggling everything all the time with no kind of conception as to what time management was really. It was just, I have all these things to get done and it's my job to do it. And even when they gave me an assistant, I think I had an attitude that was really, I can't ask her to do that. And I don't feel comfortable doing that because really that's my job and it would be unfair to be giving that to her. And I think we certainly never sat down and talked out what it was that she was capable of doing and what it was that I could give to her. And I had no clue how to utilize her at all. And I always say that if I had done that point when I was a very young publisher, I would probably have got home to see my children far more. And between us, my husband and I have seven kids. So that was a lot of kids that I was trying to juggle when I was going home. So the two things I think contributed very much to the fact that in 2010, I burnt out because I was just trying to be all things to all people. I was on a train at seven o'clock in the morning. I was rarely home before 10 o'clock at night. I was working most weekends. I was feeling guilty most of the time for not spending time with the kids. And yet it never occurred to me, for example, that I had somebody there that I could say, could you triage my email? Or could you write this briefing document for me? Or could you go and look at how we structure this bit for me and do that research? I just felt that they were there to do bits and pieces and I was there to do the work. Mm, interesting. And thank you so much for sharing that because over the last sort of two, three, four decades, the working world has changed so, so much. And I think few of us are really acknowledging the the stepping stones to where we are today. So would you say that back in the day, it was a badge of honor to be there in the office first and leaving the office last? I would definitely say so. And I would also say that it was very much expected. There was a book that came out a little while back, which got turned into a terrible film with Sarah Jessica Parker that was called I Don't Know How She Does It. And it's by Alison Pearson. And it was like Bridget Jones, I suppose, for working mums. The book made me laugh and it made me cry, actually. There was a bit in the beginning where the mother is there distressing Mots and Spencer's mince pies in order to show that she was doing stuff because it was homemade, because the other mothers were spending great time making jam and homemade cookies and she just didn't have time to do it and there was another part of the book where she said I am the mother that goes to the wine bar after work rather than going home because I can't cope with my children being needy because I'm too exhausted and if I wait until they go to bed then I can do that so I think it was all those things and more that was the reality it was trying to do a job so that I could provide for the children because initially anyway I was a single parent although I am remarried now and all the pressure of, you know, if I said I wanted to go and see the children in a nativity play, the comment would be, well, are you committed to this job? You know, so there just wasn't the work-life balance like it is now. In fact, I can remember when I got pregnant with Marcus, my first one, and he's now 30, um, they said to me when I said I was late because I had morning sickness, this is not an illness, it's a condition and you need to make sure you're in on time. Wow. So, you know, the way that things are done has totally, totally changed. And I wanted to be successful. I wanted my children to have nice things. I wanted them to be able to go on holiday and do the things that nice middle-class families like mine do. But that meant really, really burning the candle at both ends. And it wasn't sustainable. 
Mm, I absolutely love this conversation because I have it with clients and audiences as well. And for me, I'm fascinated by where the norms have come from. And as you're saying, it's reiterated in the movies, it's reiterated in the offices, it's reiterated in your social circles. And there is that personal development phrase that the five people you spend the most time with are who you become like. And if one of those people is ourselves, and then the others are our peers, our professional connections, our family, then it's no wonder that this pattern is being propagated over and over and over again. And what's so interesting is now that my daughter says, my generation are going to fight for the right to stay at home because you were never here. And we would rather have a sabbatical at the end of working hard than we would be promoted. The statistics around the people who work to pension age and then die within a couple of years are very, very scary and not to put a downer on it. But let's just stick with what life looked like before. Would you say, and this is a big one that comes up for my audiences now, and I'm so interested to understand the journey from there to there. How much of an impact do you feel like self-worth and imposter syndrome was influencing your relationship with time in the past, if you were like? Well, very definitely, because, of course, when I first became a publisher, I think I was 28, 29, and I was one of the youngest publishers in the UK at that point. So the fact that they had given me that role, and I never felt that I was quite on top of it, because there was always so much to do and so many people to manage. And also, you're never given training as to how to do that stuff. You know, I think the average age that someone gets management training is 46. That's the stat. So, you know, you're given an assistant and they're meant to help you. And you know, this is the basis of my entire company is teaching executives how to use their assistants and teaching assistants how to be fully utilized by their executives and how to do those conversations. So it's really interesting looking back on it going as somebody who really got very high up in the publishing company, what would the difference have been to my life if I had really understood how to use them. But yes, you're right. The imposter syndrome piece did and still does to a certain extent. I think it always does with all of us, doesn't it? The little voice who goes, do you really know what you're doing? Do you know what we should be doing? What direction are we heading in? Can I ask them to do that? And that's coming from somebody who trains people all the time. Yes, you can. Of course you can. And actually, most of the time, they would really like to be better utilized. I think the latest stat is that 78% of them feel they're not being properly utilized. That's half a billion people worldwide who are working in organizations who aren't getting the most from them just because they don't understand how to. I remember going on a training once. I can't remember who said it, but they said something like, you must understand what you are not good at, somebody else is good at. What you don't want to do, somebody else wants to do, loves to do, and is good at doing. So what I'm hearing you say and what they were sort of trying to reiterate to us is that the missing piece is quite simply just your ability and whether it is training that you need to ask somebody to do a task that you are not good at and know that they are going to love it. So very basically, Excel spreadsheets. I know that the people that you are working with, they are just so proficient at managing and organizing an Excel 
they understand the macros and all of the things because they go to the training events that you run as well. And it's just how, Lucy, do you get that message over to the managers that their support wants to support them and can support them and loves it? I think actually the most interesting thing is that when I stand in front of a group of assistants, or when I stand in front of a group of managers, because I do that more and more as well, and I say, what is your assistant employed for? They look at me and they go, well, you know, and this is the assistants themselves, you know, I'm there to do the things that they don't like doing and I'm there to fill the gaps. I say, no, your job is to give them back time. You are employed by your business. You're not employed by your executive and you're employed by your business to ensure that every hour of the salary that they are paid is best spent. And so you are giving them back time every day by taking things away from them that you are able to do. And simple economics says, does it not, that if you have two people and they are both capable of doing certain things, but one of them is capable and is paid a lot more money for their expertise in certain areas, then it should be the lower paid person who is doing the things that both of you are capable of doing. Not only that, but as you just pointed out, there are certain things that administrative professionals are exceptional at, which the executive may not be. And so it's almost like it's two sides of the coin and it's one complete employee for the business because they're not just freeing up time and that drops to the bottom line. That time that's being freed up can then be utilized to do things which the executive should be doing because that's what they're being paid to do. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. And I'm not such a great fan of the word should, but it's just a useful word in this context of this conversation. So just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Because what I'm hearing you say is that if you are the executive and your job is to, I don't know, sit at the boardroom table and make decisions and speak to the the clients and bring in multi-million pound, billion pound deals, just because you can do the work of your support doesn't mean that you need to be doing all of these things because it's teamwork that makes these dreams work. It is. And right at the beginning, when I started the company, it was me sitting at home. And I can remember getting very overwhelmed when we were about four months in, I suppose. And I had a friend of mine say, well, you really need an assistant. And I said, well, I can't afford one. And they said, you can't not afford one. How much will you end up paying them an hour? And how much are you going to make as an entrepreneur per hour? You need to hire somebody that's going to take all that stuff away from you so that you free up your time to go and do the things that you really should be doing. And you're so right, the could and the should piece. For example, I can do my own emails, but Harvard Business Review says that the average executive spends 26% of their time doing email. If you have an assistant that triages your email for you, that can take that down to 12% of your time. So immediately you're freeing up all that time to go and do the things that you should be doing that are going to make the company a lot more money. So the executives that say, it's all right, I'm tech savvy. I can deal with my own emails. And by the time I taught you what to do, I might as well have done it myself. It's nonsense because actually it isn't a case necessarily of the assistant answering loads of emails. It's understanding how to triage it so that 
you're only dealing with the things that you need to deal with today, which also make you far more effective and makes people think that you're far better at what you do. Because if somebody's emailing you and the things you need to deal with today are getting dealt with straight away, they go, gosh, they're really efficient. They got to what they said they were going to do immediately. Mm, No, I love, love, love that. And the statistic as well around focus and how if we are switching our focus constantly, so what is in this email, what is in this email, what does this person need, what does that person need, you are using your cognitive resource and it's a finite amount of energy that we all have every day. And some people actually are not fortunate enough to have assistance. But if you are, you have an incredible extra skill set that maybe your peers don't, maybe your competitors don't. So use that and use it as a force maximizer or force multiplier. I think this is one of the the people that sort of you've had at your events in the past who talks about this whole concept that it is a force multiplier and how can I support you to elevate faster? Absolutely. And that's so interesting, actually. I interviewed Adam Hergen-Rother, who is the guy who started Keller Williams, which is the biggest real estate company in the world. And over the last 10 years, he's become a billionaire. And he and his now chief of staff, Hallie Warner, wrote a book called uh, The Founder and Force Multiplier about their relationship and what they've learned from their partnership. But he always leaves the office at two o'clock. And he has done ever since he started the company. And that's because he says that it's Parkinson's law, which says that you are going to fill however much time it is that you have got uh, that you put aside to do something. So if you have got one task to do today, it will take you all day to do it. If you've got three tasks to do today, you'll make time to do that. So he says he spends every day like he's going on holiday tomorrow and works till two o'clock and then goes home and gets done the things that he needs to do and then has staff who does all the rest of it. And I think that's phenomenal. I love that idea of using your time and having control of your time to such an extent that you're saying, that's it. That's what you've got today. And after that, everybody else is going to deal with it for me. Yeah, I love that. And then also that is really this knowing your worth that I have brought my all to this and now I'm done. The psychology around how we use our time is incredible. And you've just reminded me because we're talking about Adam's book here. You actually, Lucy, have a new book that as we are speaking, is being launched around the world. The modern day assistant, build your influence and boost your potential. I'm so, so excited to find out more about this book. Tell us, why did you write the book? I wrote the book because I have been traveling all around the world. I mean, I spend a ridiculous amount of time on planes. Last year, I was only home for about 12 weeks And I'm training wherever I go. I'm speaking at conferences and I'm running my two-day course. And the people that attend my course say it's life-changing. And that isn't marketing. I get emails all the time saying you changed my life. Because I am really, I think, giving the assistants confidence to understand that their role is to lead up and that they have a very specific role here, which is to make their executives the best they can be. And in some ways, it's giving them permission to do that. But it's also giving them all the tools and things to take back to the office, to their execs, to say, if you allow me to do this, for example, to attend leadership meetings, 
I am going to get this out of it and this is what it's going to do for you and for the company. So it's teaching them business strategy, it's teaching them business language, it's a lot of communication and project management and problem solving and stress management. But to attend that course costs people quite a lot of money, well, nearly a thousand pounds. So for me, I really have always wanted to get it out of my head and into book format because I just want the assistants to be able to read it. But I also want them to be able to show executives and say, look, this is how we can work together better to make sure that it's working for you. And I think my perspective is really unique. I think there are a lot of people who are out there who are training, who used to be assistants, and they're very, very good. But I think from my point of view, I have been an executive. And so when I say your executive will love you for doing this, it's somebody who's used assistance who's saying, I know personally, if you had done that for me, I would have been doing backflips. And so I was very lucky. Kogan Page, who are the people who publish all the CIPD HR books, wanted me to write it and they are publicizing it all over the place. And I just heard it's going into all the airports, into the WH Schmitz at the airports in the UK, which is very exciting. Um, and they're on a great publicity drive at the moment, but it's actually out on the 3rd of September in Europe and the UK, and then in America on the 26th of September. So it's so new that I haven't even got a copy yet. It's going to be there when I get to the UK in two weeks' time. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. I'm so, so excited. It sounds like you've got sort of a book launch month around the world touring and, and talking about it. Who is this book for? You've kind of alluded, but specifically if somebody was listening, um, they'd be saying, is this book for me? Who have you written this book for? I've written it for administrative professionals at whatever level they are, because very often when I'm training in-house, the HR people say, well, should we be sending everybody to this or just the senior ones? And I say, well, it's up to you. But I think that even the lower level administrative professionals are going to get something out of it and see what they can aspire to do, what they can aspire to be. And they're still going to learn tips and tricks in there on all sorts of things. Because although assistants now are more likely to be found knee deep in project management and in research and in data analysis and really supporting at a more strategic level, there are still obviously bits of email and travel organization and calendar and the more traditional, what we would have termed secretarial roles, I suppose. And so there's stuff in there for that level as well. But mainly it's aimed at the more senior assistants. Having said that, I also think there's stuff in there, as I said, that they're going to be able to highlight and take to their execs and go, look, this is research that has been done right the way across the world, and this is the best way to do it, and I'd like us to look and see how we're able. Amazing. It really sounds to me like it's going to be one of those career life Bible books where you read it, it meets you where you're at as your career evolves. There's, there's certain books that on my corporate career were those ones who moved my cheese. I'm sure you must have read that one. So I feel like this is going to become, you know, it's going to be the manual for their life, if you like. So I know when I was writing my book that I could visualize the person that I was writing it for, and it was almost like I was having a conversation with them. Um, I'm not sure if that's just my process or if other authors are similar, but what would you say, Lucy, is one thing that you hope that this reader would take away from reading the book? So right at the beginning, I asked them some questions that I really want them to have answered by the time they get to the end of the book. And for example, one of those is what your current boundaries and authority 
and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And if you're not allowed to do things, is that because you, if you're honest, you haven't asked because you're scared or because you think they're going to say no or because you know you're going to be really angry if they say no? Another question there is where do you see yourself in five years' time, in 10 years' time? Or because most assistants are so busy in crisis and firefighting, Mm -hmm. is that something that really you haven't ever taken the chance to think about? But the question that I finish with there is when was the last time that you felt highly motivated? And to me, this is what happens with assistants because they are not seen as a career. They're seen as a job and they're not treated like talent. They're treated like a resource. And that gets very demoralizing over a period of time. So what I say is, if when I said, when was the last time you felt highly motivated, your brain went, well, not at the moment, that's for sure, and really not for really quite a long time. I hope that by the time they get to the end of the book, they're saying, I'm feeling really motivated to go and have conversations that I didn't feel brave enough to have before. And I have a map and a compass and I now have clarity on how I can drive my career forward because it is a career and it's a career of choice for half a billion women and the 2% of men that are also in this career right now. And it needs to start to be recognized as such because the value that they add to their organizations when they utilize properly could quite simply change the economy of an organization. Wow. What I'm hearing you share there is that the thing that they're taking away from the book is empowerment. You're almost the mirror that's showing them how great they are. And I think that if that's something that you can take away from a book, then it's a book worth reading, in my opinion. Thank you. I think there's a lot of practical things in there as well, but there are also a lot of stories and a lot of examples and things that have happened over the last 12 years, which really reiterate the points that I'm making. And certainly, I mean, I wrote it really quite quickly. I wrote it mainly actually on aeroplanes. My team said to me, you haven't got time to do this. And they were correct. I didn't have time to do it. So a lot of it was written on aeroplanes and then edited afterwards, but it came absolutely from my heart and just went onto paper. And the people who have read it so far and come back have said, I was really surprised. I thought it was going to be an entirely practical step-by-step. And there's no doubt that the practical stuff is there, but actually in places it's really quite moving. And I'm really pleased about that. And the fact that they've said that they can really hear my voice throughout it. But those two things I think are really important. It has to have stories attached to it because otherwise people don't remember. Mm, Amazing. It's Yeah, isn't it that adage, people remember how you made them feel, not necessarily what you said. You mentioned at the start that burnout was something that you were experiencing in your early stages of your career. And I would say that it's a conversation that comes up again and again, and it's something that entrepreneurs experience as well. So business owners also experience this throughout their career. What would be your top tips for anybody, whoever they are, is listening to this and they're starting to feel some of the symptoms? What would you recommend to them? I think it started with being honest with yourself. I mean, I spent months with people saying, are you all right? And me going, of course, I'm fine. No problem, I'm fine. But I wasn't. I was so exhausted, I didn't know what to do with myself. But I just felt I had to keep going. And it's doing the things that they tell you to do, isn't it? It's going to bed early if you need to and realizing that that doesn't make you a wuss. It's actually just really sensible. Know yourself. Know when you're really past it. 
it's eating healthily instead of grabbing something on the way home because you just don't feel like you've got time to do it. And it's exercising. And I hate exercise with a passion for most of my life. But living here in Spain now, which is in part because I needed to make sure that I got the balance better, I walk to work every morning. It's a 35-minute walk. It's along a beautiful seafront with the most stunning scenery. So I remind myself every morning of how beautiful things are. And it's my time to really think and gather my thoughts before I get into work. And at the end of the day, I do the same thing in reverse. And it's another 35 minutes. So I did that on purpose. I could have got an office really close to my apartment here in the port. But actually, I decided I was going to get somewhere that was 35 minutes walk away so that I got my 10,000 steps a day and, and so that I had brain space, whatever was happening in my day. Really important. Fantastic. I love that. So we talked at the beginning then about your relationship with time back when you started your career. And you've just shared that moving your body is something that's sort of really essentially a part of your life now. What other things are you doing and what would you say your relationship is like with time these days? Um, COVID was a great leveler, actually. And time boxing is something that I think has really revolutionized the way I look at things. There's an article in Harvard Business Review on time boxing, and I talk about it in the book a lot as well and put a link to that article. But time boxing is simply taking your calendar and putting everything into it, whether it's personal or whether it's business. So, of course, my meetings go in there first and the things that I absolutely have to do with work. But my walk to work in the morning goes in there. If I'm going on date night, it goes in there. Lunch is in there. Now, that sounds ridiculous. But actually, it used to be that I would get to four o'clock and go, I'm feeling a bit strange. Why am I feeling so odd? Oh, I know. I haven't had lunch yet. Well, there's no point now because I'm leaving the office shortly. So what's the point in eating now? So that was all out of kilter. But also, I used to do back-to-back meetings. And it's been proven, I don't know if you've seen the research, but Microsoft has some extraordinary research that shows that when you do that and they monitor your brain, your brain looks red and orange and very angry and very bothered. But if you just put 20 minutes between each meeting, your brain suddenly is looking blue and green and cool and like you're in control of things. Now, the point is, especially when you're doing back-to-back meetings online, you're literally doing a meeting, you're taking loads of notes, you're getting really excited about what you're talking about, and then you finish that meeting and you go straight into another one. So now you've got notes, and you have no time to type up those notes, you've got no time to set tasks for other people, and also you have no time to download what's just happened in the meeting and to think about things that might be exciting. But when you have 20 minutes between each meeting, you have time to do all that stuff, and now you can go into the other meeting feeling like that one has been gone and done, rather than doing probably meetings right the way through to lunchtime and then going, I can't remember what the heck happened in that first meeting. I've got a few bullet points, but what actually did I say I was going to do? The other thing is, Mondays and Fridays on the whole, for me now, are days when I do my own work. So I do the work I promised to do in the meetings. So Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday are the days where I do meetings. Monday and Friday on the whole are my days to do the work I promised to do in the meetings. So it just feels like it's under control rather than being something that I'm constantly trying to rein in and is a stress in its own right, quite apart from the work being stress, just because I never feel I'm on top of it. Love that. So I'm really hearing that managing your tasks as well to fit in around the time that you have. 
I would love to know, and I'm sure the audience would too, in your diary, do you colour the different meetings, different colours? So have you got colours for personal stuff, colours for lunch, colours for work? Absolutely. And the time in between each meeting is coloured yellow because it's golden time. Wow. Love it. I love it. These are like the little secret top tips that I like to pull out of people that um, you can then apply in your own life. Lucy, this conversation's fantastic. And I'm sorry that we are sort of coming to the end of our time. And I mentioned at the start that people could win a signed copy of your book. And we decided amongst ourselves prior to hitting record on this podcast that there is going to be a key word that people need to share on social media in order to win this signed copy of the book. And we're going to share this right at the very, very end. So before we give away this keyword, you've spoken in so many different places to so many different people around the world. Tell us your audience reach. How many people are in your community across all the social media platforms? It's thousands now, isn't it? Uh, yes. I mean, LinkedIn alone, our group is 50,000 and my personal following is 42,000. Our database is about 150,000 across everybody. So, but there are half a billion of them. So half a billion administrative professionals worldwide. It's a fifth of the world's working population and 98% of them are women. So we still have a few to track down yet. Wow. When you get to that place where you go to the beach and everybody on the beach is reading your book, then, you know, maybe, or maybe that's my goal. <laughs> that might be something, a sight to be seen. Where would you say is the most unusual place that you've spoken over the years? Probably Papua New Guinea. And Papua New Guinea is the most extraordinary place. It's quite dangerous. It's quite dangerous. There's still cannibalism in parts of Papua New Guinea. And when I was there, I was being driven around in an armored car with a guy with a gun sitting next to me. However, the people in Papua New Guinea that I met were absolutely extraordinary. And if I meet any of you in a bar at any point, I will tell you the stories because it was the most phenomenal trip, which ended up with 400 women dancing at a gala dinner to the Proclaimers 500 miles, which was one of the most surreal moments of my life, I have to tell you. However, I would go back again in a heartbeat. It was one of the most extraordinary trips I've been on. Wow, that's amazing. And now you've got my brain going, singing the 500 mile song. That was my university song with my housemates we used to dance to. <laughs> so it's incredible that you danced to that in Papua New Guinea. Is there anything that you haven't been asked today that you would like to share with the audience from the point of view of time, from the point of view of the mission that you're on. In fact, tell us this mission that you're on because you told me before we started recording and it's just an incredible. Well, we developed the Global Skills Matrix. The World Administrators Alliance developed the Global Skills Matrix, which is a career framework for assistants, which for the very first time means that you can see what the different levels of assistant are and what kind of skills and tasks you can expect them to do at each level. And I was explaining this to a lady called Zelda Lacologie and what we were trying to do probably 10 years ago now. Zelda was the EA to Nelson Mandela, so she's quite a lady. And she said to me, oh my goodness, Lucy, if you get this right, you're going to change the working lives of half a billion women. And I went, oh my word, because that's really scary, actually, thinking that, that that's 
something that you might be able to do. You know, who am I to think that that's something I could achieve? And so I went home to London feeling really quite scared about that. And very short time after that, I was watching TV and a film came on, which some of you will know if you're UK based, which is called Made in Dagenham. And it's about a shop worker at the Ford factory who fought against things that were unfair for the women who worked there and changed all their working lives. And then I sat there and thought, well, why not me? Because if it isn't me, who else is going to do it? And so that for me is where I'm at. We're talking about global skills matrix in companies all over the world to HR departments who actually are doing backflips because they are being asked, particularly coming out of COVID, how you measure the return on investment of each of the members of staff. And for the first time, that is including the administrative professionals. So if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And the global skills matrix means you can do that. So I'm just on this mission, really, to upskill all the assistants, make sure the businesses are utilizing them properly where they weren't, and for businesses to really understand what an extraordinary resource they have there to help them with their time and to make more time. I mean, goodness, I know that with your book, you said to me, can you give me your best time management tip? And I said, hire a amazing EA. And you went, well, of course you'd say that, but that wasn't what I was expecting, you know? And I think very often we don't see our assistants that way and we really should be. Mm, I love it. Thank you. And your mission, wow, that sounds incredible. And I really know that with these great big things, it's so much more than us. It's about each one, teach one, and the fact that you will be getting the book out there and people will be sharing it with their friends. I'm sure that reaching a billion people, it will be done. It is already done. So we were deciding what the special word was going to be for somebody to win a signed copy of Lucy's book. And so in order to win this, what you need to do is tell us on a social media platform of your choice, maybe it's Twitter, now known as X, (laughs) maybe it's Facebook, still known as Facebook, (laughs) maybe it's Instagram, still known as Instagram. Let us know, maybe it's YouTube, wherever you're watching this, wherever you're tuning into this, let us know on the social media platform of your choice what you are taking away from this conversation with us, what it means for you, how you're going to apply it to your career, your business, your life, and tag us. All of our links are going to be in the show notes, but be sure to use this hashtag Now, Lucy, explain to us why we're using this hashtag. The question I asked you was, what's the national emblem of the country that you most enjoyed speaking in as an unusual place to speak? So what is the emblem of Papua New Guinea? It is a paradise bird and is on everything. And it's beautiful. I don't know if you've ever seen one. They really are absolutely gorgeous. And one of my memories of being in Papua New Guinea was paradise birds. I love it. So you heard it here. To win a signed copy of Lucy's brand new book, The Modern Day Assistant, Build Your Influence and Boost Your Potential, share with us on the social media platform of your choice what you are taking away from this conversation today and use the hashtag bird of paradise. That is one word, bird of paradise. And we will be letting you know who the lucky winner is of that book. 
So Lucy, thank you so much for joining me today, for your time, for sharing your journey with time from where you were to where you are today, as well as the top tips and things that we are going to be able to find out more about in your brand new book. I'm so excited to be seeing this global book tour that you will be on, sharing these tips, reaching these people, and for assistants to see their value and for executives who are lucky enough to have support, to work with their support. Because so many times I meet people who struggle to get their job done and they don't have the support. Their organization just doesn't invest in it, doesn't believe in it. And they are working till 10, 11 o'clock at night to catch up on all the things that a team member could be supporting them with. So I think it is such a privilege for anybody who has them to be able to learn how to maximize their use of them. So Lucy, thank you so, so much for joining me today. And I look forward to further conversations in the future. Thank you so much, Abigail. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you loved what you heard, be sure to let me know by leaving a review so I can keep the good stuff coming. Come and say hi on Instagram at Success by Design Training or visit my website, successbydesigntraining.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search Abigail Barnes. Until next time, don't forget, you are amazing and it's your time. <laughs>